We begin reading in the eleventh verse. I'm going to ask that you stand as we as I read the scripture. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said unto her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around, and behold, Jesus was standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I have ascended to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. And therefore when it was evening and on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. We come today in John 20 and 21, the last two chapters of the book, to the climax of one of the most marvelous writings that the pen of man has ever given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We come today to the climax of history. For if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then the unbelief of mankind which pursued him, or so they thought, to death, to a criminal's death on the cross, would have culminated there and unbelief would have triumphed and it would have been eternal had there been no resurrection. The death of Christ would have been, as many now believe that it is, a magnificent gesture, but without real meaning, nothing more than symbolism. A magnificent but futile gesture, but of course that is not true. John, as is characteristic of his gospel, masterfully tells us this story using few words and giving convincing evidence, the ring of authenticity, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ without the language of myth or sensationalism. The book of John is organized around signs, miraculous occurrences, all of which authenticated the person and the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. 
with the resurrection, the ultimate sign is complete. As he prophesied, the temple of God, his body, which was destroyed and torn down, has now been built up again in three days. We see the resurrected Jesus in John's story. Now John does not describe for us the act of resurrection, but in seeing Jesus after he is resurrected, we also see more in John than in the other Gospels the effect that the resurrection had on the lives of those who knew Jesus and who saw him after the resurrection. In this chapter, we will see four uh, groupings of people. First of all, there is Mary Magdalene. Then we will see Peter and John as they come to the tomb. And then the ten disciples unbelieving to whom he comes in the upper room. And finally, Thomas, called the doubter, but in reality he was not a doubter. He just flat did not believe the witness of his friends. And so in John 20, we see the dawn of victory. There should be a Bible near you in uh, one of the pew racks. They are a little bit shorter than the hymnals, though very similar in appearance. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open to John 20 and to follow with me throughout the message. If you uh, did not bring one, then please use the pew Bible. You will want it open for reference as the message will simply draw from and develop the text of John chapter 20. In John 20, 1 through 10, first of all, we see the Lord arisen. Now when she comes at dawn, when Mary Magdalene comes at dawn on the first day of the week, the stone door is already moved. This uh, tomb was newly carved, we have been told. No doubt that also means that not only the interior, but also the trough in front of the stone opening, the opening in the stone, would have been carved and a large stone, almost round, would be poised with a wedge under it above the opening so that when they laid him to rest that afternoon, they had but to kick that wedge out of the way and the stone rolled across the opening. But in order to move that stone, which probably weighed two to three tons, it would take the united effort of a number of strong men. And yet when Mary comes at dawn, the stone is already gone. Let me recommend the little book to you. It is a book written by Frank Morrison entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Morrison, a Britisher of another generation, set out to do research and to write the definitive work that would disprove what to him was the myth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came away from honest inquiry and research, a firm believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and wrote one of the most effective defenses of the resurrection that has ever been written. 
Morrison suggests the question, who moved the stone? Was it the women? No, if all of the women who traveled with the Lord Jesus had come together at the tomb that morning, they would not have had the strength to move the stone. Was it the disciples? The disciples were the last ones to believe that he had been raised from the dead. By the time they believed it, the deed had long been done. Well, what of his enemies? By no means did his enemies move the stone. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain by the disappearance of his body. Was it grave robbers? Details that John and the other writers give demonstrate to us that it could not have been grave robbers. There was nothing to steal, and they would have known that. But details in the text demonstrate that it could not have been them either. And so who moved the stone? It was moved by the power of God not to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we could see that he was gone. Mary Magdalene was last at the cross, and now she came first to the tomb. Have you ever wondered why it was her? Why of his family, his disciples, the great multitudes that heard him teach, the others who were healed, those who were raised from death, resuscitated to this life by him. Why was it Mary Magdalene who came to the tomb first, who stayed at the cross last? Merrill Tenney makes this observation. How is it that many whose faith it would be uncharitable to deny work so little, give so little, say so little, make such little effort to promote the cause of Christ and to bring glory to Christ in the world? These questions have only one answer. It is a low sense of debt and gratitude to Christ which accounts for the whole matter. Where sin is not felt at all, nothing is done. And where sin is little felt, little is done. Of those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene seems to have retained the memory of what she was saved from better than any of the others. She knew what life was like without him. She knew the degradation of sin. She knew the depths to which humanity could go. And she had been transferred from darkness to light by the grace of God. And her gratitude and her love to him kept her close by. And when we, as Merrill Tenney says, go to so little effort to demonstrate his presence in our lives, to show his presence to our world, is it not because we have forgotten what we would be without his grace? John and Peter come to the tomb, Mary Magdalene having run to get them. There is a very interesting usage of words in these verses. The story is that as they ran... John ran ahead of Peter, and when he came, 
uh, to the tomb first, he glanced in, and the text says that John saw the grave clothes. But then Peter came, and he went in all the way to the tomb, and another word is used that says Peter looked, and that word is a word that means to look carefully and intently. And then when Peter lingered inside the tomb, John goes himself all the way into the tomb. And still another word is used when it says that John saw. And this word, the word Ido, means to see with understanding. And when John saw with understanding the interior of the tomb, he believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, it is most interesting to see the statement in verse 9, after it has just said in verse 8, then entered therefore the other disciple also, that's John, who had first come to the tomb and he saw and believed. He saw with understanding. Then verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. John, when he looked at the grave, at the crypt, where the body of Jesus had been laid on a stone ledge, he believed that Christ was raised from the dead. Now why? We talked a little bit about the burial method last week. The body of Christ having been washed and laying uh, out flat would have been wrapped with long linen strips from the tip of the toes up to the armpits very tightly. And in each fold of the fabric as it went around him, there would be put spices to uh, help retard uh, the odor of the decay of the body. And then a separate cloth, a narrower strip, quite long, was wrapped tightly about the head. Now when John got to the grave first, he looked in. And when he looked in and saw the grave clothes, he assumed the body was still there. Because there in the light of the morning, still low on the horizon, he could see the form the grave clothes laying out on the ledge. But then when he went all the way in and he looked, the grave clothes were as if the body was still wrapped in them, but the body was gone. It would not have been possible to recreate the wrappings and the shape of the wrappings and the folding of the spices and especially the wrapping of the head. It would not have been possible to recreate that without a body. And yet the body was gone. John is an example of clear understanding bringing absolute conviction. He did not yet understand the Scripture. Jesus had prophesied his resurrection. But when he saw, what he saw convinced him that there was only one possible explanation. Jesus had been raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. The door was open not to let him out, for he was already gone, but to let them in 
so that they could see that he had risen. And the ultimate sign is now complete. In John 10, verses 11 through 18, which we have read, here is the Lord appearing. Mary Magdalene could not leave until she had an answer. Now, Peter and John have come. No doubt they had a very interesting conversation. And now they have gone to their homes. We are told earlier in John that from the moment of the crucifixion when they left the hill of Calvary, John took the mother of Jesus into his home. No doubt he went quickly to tell her of the resurrection. Peter went to his home. But Mary could not leave until she had an answer. Here is lamentation, for the text says that Mary wept. Here is investigation. She looked intently and carefully. Here is observation. When she looked into the tomb again, she saw two men in white raiment who were angels. Here is desperation as she says, Where have you taken him? And here is frustration as she says to the one she supposes to be the gardener, Where have you taken him? I do not know where he is. Mary could not even believe her own eyes. She was so overcome with panic and agitation at the absence of the body that she did not see and understand as John did. And how often are our tears and our sorrows needless because we will not see and we will not accept the power and the provision in the grace of God which is all around us. And then the Lord Jesus called her name. He called her name perhaps as only he did. And the voice of Jesus convinced her that this one appearing before her was the risen Lord. And then in verses 19 through 23, here is the Lord appointing. I love this brief paragraph. I love the insight into it that we gain from the book of Luke, who Luke sets the stage for us quite well by telling us that in the morning some of the women and the disciples had gone to the tomb, but they did not find him. And and now the women say that they have seen him and two of their number have been walking down the road to the village of Emmaus to go to their homes. They were going home defeated. They were leaving Jerusalem after the great feast weekend believing their hopes were dashed and their hope was gone forever. When the Lord Jesus walked with them and spoke to them about what the scriptures said about Messiah, about his death and his resurrection. And then he appeared to them as they sat at table in their home. And they have just come beating on the door where the disciples 
are gathered for fear of the Jews. They let them in and rushing in breathlessly, they say, it's true, it's true, we have seen him, he is alive. And then you come to John 20, verse 19, where it says, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. And in one of the classic understatements of all time, John says, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. The Lord, a risen, appearing, and now appointing his disciples to complete his mission. He came without announcement and he came quite naturally to the center of the room where he was in their midst. And as he spoke to them saying, Peace be to you, the wounds in his hands confirmed his identity. And then it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It is an act of new creation. Just as when the Lord God knelt and breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living being, so Jesus Christ arisen from the dead, breathed on his disciples and created a new thing, his people, his church, who were to complete his message. Here is a gift. He gives them peace. Here is a command. We are to go as he went. Here is an endowment, the Holy Spirit. And here is a gift to the world, forgiveness. They were together that night because they were afraid. None of them felt safe in his own home, and they came together if perhaps they would be a little safer when they were all together. And Christ appointed them as he does us to go in his authority to tell the good news. In verses 24 through 29, here is the Lord appeasing. The story in this, uh, these verses of Thomas is a very intriguing story, for in it we see the patience of the Lord Jesus. We see what great love he has even for those of his children who flounder in unbelief. We see his condescension as he comes not in a condemning way but in a loving way to answer the demand of the unbelieving disciple. But what I am most interested in is what Thomas missed. Thomas probably had no good reason for not being there when everyone else was in the upper room. Bishop J.C. Ryle said, The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word for our souls, the very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very 
time that would have cheered, established, and quickened our hearts. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on the little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss. The wretched argument that many who attend are no better for it should be no argument at all to a Christian. It is indeed not limited to Thomas. How often have I observed over a long time now, over 25 years, people with real need who set up a situation of self-fulfilling prophecy in their need or the misunderstanding or the disagreement or whatever it may be, they withhold themselves from intimacy with other Christians. They begin to stay away from the times the church comes together to worship and to study the Word of God. And then they feel that the church is cold, that it is unfriendly, that no one cares. When the entire sequence of events has been set into motion by their own action. How sad it was for Thomas to miss that first glorious appearance. As the Lord appears to them and as he comes to appease the unbelief of Thomas, he refutes Thomas's unbelief. His resurrection power is demonstrated. He came into the room through a closed door twice to be with them. There was the reality of his physical presence. They were able to touch him and feel him. There was the reply to the challenge and the rebuke to the hardened attitude that would not accept the united testimony of all of his friends. Thomas however, is an example of what happens to honest unbelief when Jesus comes. When honest unbelief meets Jesus Christ, there is faith. The resurrection turned a mourner into a missionary, the Apostle John. It turned a doubter into a confessor. It turned a penitent sinner, Peter, into a preacher. And it turned a timid band of disciples into the bold heralds of a new order. And they went out and by the testimony of a Roman official, they turned the world upside down. Now Thomas, in his personality, seems to have been a pessimistic person. You know, they might call Murphy's Law Thomas's Law uh, because it seems that Thomas was absolutely convinced that anything that could go wrong would go wrong. But we see in Thomas how unreasonable unbelief is, and it always is, as he stubbornly, consistently refused 
the eyewitness testimony of all of his friends. He said to them, as children sometimes say to each other, prove it. I won't believe it unless I see it. Bishop Ryle made a further observation about Thomas. Concerning Thomas, we know little, but he always seems to be one of those desponding, fearful, gloomy Christians who looked at the dark side of every subject and can never see a bit of blue sky, who go on their way to heaven with real faith and true grace, but are so full of doubt and fear that they are unable to enjoy their faith and are a trouble to themselves and all around them. Thomas was simply a good man with a very doubting and gloomy turn of mind, a man who really loved Jesus, who was willing to die with him, but a man who saw little but the dangers of every disciple and the difficulties of belief. There are many like Thomas. It is a very useful picture. And how often in our own lives do we absolutely refuse to believe and accept the resurrection power and the provision that God has made for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? How often are our lives so like His? In verses 30 and 31, here is the Lord appealing. John, at this point, states the purpose that God had in inspiring John to write the gospel as he did. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here is a summary statement of the purpose of the writing of the book. The purpose of the writing of this gospel was not to report everything that Jesus did, that Jesus said. The purpose was to promote belief. The signs that John told us about were designed to prove who Jesus was. More signs were wrought. There were many more miracles. John tells us in chapter 21 that if they wrote down everything he said and did, the world would not contain all of it. But these are more than enough for us to believe. Indeed, the resurrection, the ultimate sign, is enough to encourage and create faith in our hearts. And I would remind you that those who will not come to the risen Christ of the Gospels will never come to God at all, no matter how great the miracle. The Lord Jesus said, Peace be unto you. I would ask you if in your experience you know his peace. 
you can. John selected what he wrote in order to give us more than enough evidence to accept its truth and to come to him. Do you, for yourself, independent of church or form or ritual, do you know him? Do you believe in him? Do you follow him? He is, by his indwelling presence, all of the proof that we need. It is not signs and wonders that bring life. God gives life to those who believe in Jesus Christ. May we pray. Heavenly Father, so often the focus is lost. The single focus of all of life, the single purpose for which we were created, which is to bring glory to you. Father, I thank you that in your power and in your love and grace, you have chosen us. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Father, I thank you that you have come to us in the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, you have brought into us the resurrection presence of Jesus Christ so that we know that he lives. Father, today, whatever it is that occupies our thoughts, would you grant us the ability for even a moment to put into focus the things that really matter, to commit ourselves anew to living on this side of Easter, to living in such a way that the world may see in us a risen, living Lord. I thank you for what you are doing and for what you will do in the lives of these, your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we will have a hymn of invitation. As we stand in a moment and sing, I invite you to meet me here at the front in order to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It is not the moving from your seat nor the coming forward that saves you, and yet the Lord commanded us that we confess him openly. It will never be any easier than it is right now to reach out in faith to him. There will never be a better time. You will never find a place to do it where people more genuinely care about your soul. So I invite you to meet me here to confess your faith in Jesus. I invite you to join this congregation. If you live here and if the Lord would lead you to serve him through this church, we invite you warmly to join us. If it is not here, you need to join and be active somewhere. It is never his will that we sit back and enjoy the efforts of others, that we park on someone else's nickel. So I invite you to commit yourself to a life of Christian service through this congregation. I invite you to confess your sin, to repent, to be restored, to receive grace and forgiveness, 
and the answering of every need through him. What he would have you do, do it this morning. Do it quickly. We will stand and sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. It is him 191 if you need the book. What he would have you do, do it right now. Do it quickly as we stand while we sing. Thank you for your kind attention, your presence this morning. It is time for us to receive God's tithes and our offerings. And visitors, at this time, please return to us uh, the card that you have prepared. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift that you gave, the gift of your very best. And I pray that in love and gratitude, we may be motivated day by day to give of our best to you and to others as you live through us. Father, teach us gratitude. Teach us the kind of awareness of what we are without you so that we always linger near you. Father, today, in some way for every one of us. May there be a moment, a serendipity, a gift of grace, when it could be said of us individually, then were we glad when we saw the Lord. 
Father, do with us as you please. Until that day that we dwell with you where you rule and reign in uncreated glory and splendor, may we be fitting examples of your life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.